Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast. And I've, I've got a title for this one that I've had in my brain for the better part of nine months now. Yes, <laughs> nine months that this uh, title for this podcast has been in the works. And the title is Not All Women Hunters Are New Hunters. And the genesis of that thought comes from my mom. And rather than subject all of our listeners to a conversation between me and my mom, <laughs> which we're not going to do, um, I, I will explain why I, I think about my mom in this regard. Because as, as a kid growing up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, I credit my mom to teaching me about bird hunting as much as, as my dad. My mom was a grouse hunter uh, in a family of bird hunters growing up. Um, it, you know, my my dad's family was family of hunters, but my mom's family, I mean, it was part of the culture of that family. And my mom grew up as a hunter. And it's it's a rem important reminder in, in my mind that in this day and age, we talk about the R3 movement, the recruit, retain, and reactivate. And a lot of times we talk about, you know, the fastest growing demographic being women. And when content we pick and the photos we pick for representing R3 are often a lot of young women, which is wonderful. But I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that there's an awful lot of women that have been hunting an awful long time. And they have um, a lot to add to the conversation, well, multiple conversations. Not only a conversation about how to recruit more women, but also how to portray and treat women in the outdoors and in bird hunting and in conservation. But then just flat out asking more women about their thoughts on bird dogs and hunting and, and pheasants and quail and conservation and shotguns. So we're going to pack all of that into this three-hour podcast. I'm just teasing. It's not going to be three hours, but it is going to be a fun conversation. Um, and we've got, uh, we've got a couple of familiar voices and a new voice to the pod, to our podcast. For the conversation, I've got back, uh, she's punching her frequent co-hosting card for the third time in a row, Marissa Jensen, the uh, coordinator for our Women on the Wing initiative. And then we have uh, two members of our National Board of Directors, uh, Marilyn Vetter, who has been on the podcast before, live from Pierre, South Dakota, last fall, where we, out, where we were out uh, chasing prairie grouse together. And we also, making her on the wing debut, is Nancy Annisfeld, also a member of our National Board of Directors and also a hardcore bird hunter, dog trainer, and conservation advocate and uh, uh, all around a wonderful human being. So um, as I introduce each of you, I'm, I'm going to let you guys each introduce yourselves to our listeners, even, uh, and I want to start with Marissa, even though you've been on the, a, a number of podcasts, you, we know how podcasts work. Some people just come in because 
this particular title caught their attention. So introduce yourself yourself to uh, to our audience first out of the bat or out of the gates. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. I'm excited to be here. I uh, first I want to know what I get when my punch card is filled all the way. <laughs> 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 no, it's been so much fun to to ride shotgun and be a co-host on these shows. And I'm really excited for this one just to uh, have conversations with a couple individuals who um, really are just an inspiration for all women in the outdoors um, as their you know, conservation leaders. So um, I am the Education and Outreach Program Manager for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. And part of that is... Um, helping to coordinate our National Women on the Wing initiative, which is our organization's um, initiative to provide opportunities for women to become engaged and dynamic conservationists. Everything from uh, landowners making conservation decisions, um, conservation practices with uh, on their landscape, and then our learn to hunt, learn to shoot events, and even everything like our women wine and wild game social events, which if you tuned into the last podcast, you were able to listen to Miss Danielle Pruitt talk about an upcoming event that we have. So thrilled to be here and uh, hear a little bit more from Marilyn and Nancy. So if folks want to learn a little bit more about, because I, I believe this episode is going to run um, mid-August in front of the Women, Wine, and Wild Game virtual event. So tease that event for folks that want to learn more. Perfect. I'm so good at doing that too. <laughs> so August 20th is when that event will take place. And Danielle Pruitt is a um, contributing editor for Meat Eater. And so she is going to cook a Coca Vaughn. I think I said it right this time. <laughs> Get the thumbs up. Coca Vaughn um, dish for participants so they can cook alongside with her. Um, the event starts at 6 p.m. And women and men are invited to tune in, and it'll last about an hour. And it's possible thanks to our sponsors, uh, Walton's, Pheasants for Dinner, and Pretty Hunter. So we are extremely excited and looking forward to grow that uh, event and hopefully have a round two. If you listen to our last episode, Danielle has a couple other recipes that I'm interested in. So I think we're going to have to have multiple events just for that reason. Right on, right on. Uh, <laughs> listeners should go back after you're done with this episode, go back and listen to the last one with Danielle. Danielle's a wonderful ambassador for the outdoors, for the connection to wild foods, a bird dog lover. And we had a great conversation. If you want to learn more about the event itself, um, you can go to the home pages of Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever. It's the um, one of the banners uh, right front and center right now. You click on that, it'll take you to, to more details. Um, all right, now moving to uh, Marilyn Vetter. Marilyn's been on, uh, like I mentioned, the, the Fort Pier episode, but uh, for listeners that didn't catch that one, go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us about your North Dakota Roots, Marilyn. You know, I, I have to tell you, Bob, I have gotten a lot of communications from people about that podcast we did from Fort Pier and the resounding responses, why the hell did you tell everyone 
about your favorite spot to hunt because now everyone else is going to go there. <laughs> 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 yeah, but it was a fun trip and we had a great time, you and Matt and, and Clyde and I. So it was a great trip. Um, so yes, I did. I grew up in North Dakota on a, on a cattle ranch, small grain farm. It was a small family farm that actually is still a working farm. My brother has it. And, you know, I was the youngest of seven. My siblings were deer hunters, really. And my dad didn't necessarily love to hunt. He he would go out and plug a deer every year because it was what we we supplemented on the table. We were like the original subsistence farm, uh, hunters and gatherers. We weren't necessarily, he didn't do it because he loved it. Uh, my brothers were beer, uh, deer hunters, not upland hunters. They really weren't. I, I wasn't exposed to it until I met my husband, Clyde. Uh, they were goose hunters. And um, it was funny, you, you mentioned your mom and you also put in our, in our notes of like whether our, our mothers were, were hunters. And my mom was not, um, but my mother also butchered 400 chickens a year. So I don't think she wanted to, to touch any more feathers than she already had to every year. So, um, <laughs> and, and she also, you know, it's funny when I think about how I grew up, my brothers would go waterfall hunting and they never once thought to take us with. And so, except one time, I had one of my brothers, my brother Elvin, took me with. And I was pretty young. I bet I was maybe five or six. And he never took me again because I wouldn't shut up. And you can't, <laughs> can't have that one your waterfall hunting. So, unfortunately, my first exposures to hunting were... Um, I was always responsible with my mother for plucking and cleaning the game, which was not necessarily the most fun part of it. So um, I was glad to see that I was uh, exposed to it from a much more entertaining and rewarding experience when um, I got involved and with dogs. And with dogs are what really kept me mm. because it enriched the experience and that um, in a way that, I, I don't know how to better describe it other than it's your holy place. <laughs> That's a great description. And I do want to circle back to um, like you got really into bird hunting through your husband. And then there was sort of a next step with dogs. So I want to come back to that because I'm really interested in the motivations component of it. But before we go there, um, Let's introduce uh, Nancy Annisfeld to the conversation as well. Also a member of our national board of directors. Uh, Nancy, go ahead and, and tell us about where you're from, where you grew up and, and how you became or when you became a bird hunter. Thanks, Bob. And hello to everybody. Uh, my first time talking here. Um, I grew up in suburban New Jersey where there was no hunting and nobody hunted, and I didn't know anybody who hunted, and except for one uncle who belonged to a pheasant preserve, and he had German short hairs, and we thought all of that was about the funniest thing we had ever ever seen or imagined in our lives. You know, he'd show up with a couple of dead pheasants and wearing some funny clothes, and you know, we'd take <laughs> pictures and put it in the blackmail file, literally. Um, but then when I <laughs> moved to Vermont and got married to a deer hunter who was a lab guy, and you know, we started learning a little bit more about hunting. And um, then a, a pheasant preserve opened here in Vermont and we heard they had pointing dogs. And we're like, oh, that's cool, let's go check them out. And it was the first time I'd ever seen a pointing dog work. Now, mind you, this was about 
20, 25 years ago. Um, and when I saw, it was an English pointer. And when I saw that dog go on point, it was like, in the instant, my life changed. It was the coolest, <laughs> sexiest thing I'd ever seen. And it's like, my husband could take his labs and his duck hunting and whatever it was else that he did. And I just knew I had to have a bird dog. And at that point, it was like, I want to handle a bird dog. I want to be a guide. And I immediately thought of getting a short hair because my weird uncle had short hairs. And so I was huh. a little a little familiarity. And then uh, when I got the short hair and started training and working it, I realized I'm going to have to shoot and hunt because I can't give this dog what he wants just by saying, you know, wait, waiting around and looking for somebody to take me in the field to let him do what he needed to do. And it was at that point that I learned how to shoot, got into bird hunting. And subsequently, my husband said, that's pretty cool. So he got back in, in you know, he got into bird hunting. And uh, the rest was kind of history from there. My huh. mother never hunted. My parents thought I was crazy once I got into all of this. But the uh, only other side note, I two, two notes I would add to it. One that I was very fortunate in having a variety of careers in my life and able to put them all together at this point as I work through my years of bird hunting um, so that I am an outdoor writer, photographer, and I can just be with bird dogs and in the wing shooting world for work as well as for play. Yeah, that's an important note because um, our listeners probably have seen your name in the pages of the Pheasants Forever Journal, the Quail Forever Journal, Upland Almanac, Covey Rise. What else am I missing? I mean, you've been writing and um, shooting photos for a couple of decades now, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, I've just been very fortunate and had great contacts in all of the wing shooting media. And that would also include uh, Project Upland and Shooting Sportsman and Pointing Dog Journal. Um, the most fun, I'll admit, is that part of my job has been sometimes to have to go to beautiful wing shooting lodges and take photos and write stories about them. And of course, that's not happening these days, but it has been right. one of the hardships of the job. <laughs> <laughs> so as, as you, Marilyn and Nancy, as you both kind of explain your path, it, it's got a similar arc in that you kind of fall in love with a guy and you get connected to hunting, but then it's the dog that kind of pulls you into your own. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's like the, the connection to a guy introduced you, but then the dog, um, yeah, there's a, it, it took you to a different level. Is that accurate? For me, it is. I, I honestly think without dogs, I probably wouldn't have stayed as, as engaged uh, because I, you know, I it made me want to get my own gear and my own gun and train my own dog. And it made me get my chart, my own path as a hunter, where when I was just brought along as part of the gang, it, it never, I always felt like the sober person at the drunk party that I, I wasn't really engaged <laughs> in it. And I, I didn't have my own my own dog, my own equipment. I mean, I, I had all the hand-me-down stuff, all the things that you should never do when you want to introduce someone to hunting is give them boots that don't fit and a gun that doesn't fit, clothes that don't fit. And it was, you know, that first year and a half, 
if I didn't love him, I would have left a long time ago because it was just <laughs> not any fun. And, you know, we didn't have dogs. So it was, you know, it, it just, the dogs are what, what kept me because then we were successful and we were getting the game that we wounded. And, and so it just, it brought it full circle. And I was always a very avid, avid dog lover, lover on the farm. We had, we had, you know, collies and other dogs that we used to the cattle. So for me, I was a dog lover first. Hmm. I, I have to pretty much say a ditto to everything Marilyn's saying because it was, okay, lovely, went along once or twice, your world, not mine. But then when it became about the dogs, you know, hunting with someone else's dogs, whether it's someone else in your family or friends, it's never the same as with your own dog. And with your own dogs, it's never the same unless you've trained the dogs yourself. There's so many layers and levels of engagement that it becomes very much your own enterprise and experience. And I think I, if it hadn't been for the dogs, it would not have happened. Yeah. It's interesting. And the dog component, I think it's important to also mention that you both have long relationships with uh, North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association, uh, one of our great partners. You, you have both served on the National Board of Directors for NAVDA. Nope. At, oh, no, you have, uh, you're super involved, though, Nancy. I, I assumed you were the president. Why, thank you, but I'll defer that to Marilyn, who was the president. No, I knew I, Marilyn was. I just stick my nose into a lot of things, and I'm very active on the chapter level and uh, some of the national events. But, I mean, I totally turn, turn the microphone to Marilyn to talk about NAVDA. Well, I, Nancy is, is too humble. She and Terry have both been amazing benefactors to NAVDA and the youth program and have helped establish it and catapulted into a program that is just – other than a, a strange year like uh, 2020 with COVID, it has been just a really great, great asset for the organization. I got involved with NAVDA right away. We got our first short hair and we found um, a chapter in North Dakota and then we helped build a chapter in Bismarck. And God, that was whew, 1990. So it's been 30 mm. years. I was involved at the chapter level. And then when we moved to Illinois, I got involved in the national board and was the editor of the magazine for about six or seven years and then was on the board for 20. And I, I just got off um, in January of this year. It was the last year of my term and did everything from president to, I ran the, the invitational for 10 years and yeah, I was hook, line and sinker or still yeah. am. I still judge. I still trial my own dogs. I just ran one on Sunday. So <laughs> it's, it's definitely a deep seated passion. Well, speaking of hook, line, and sinker, I mean, that I mentioned that you're both on the National Board of Directors and have been for a number of years, but you're also officers. Marilyn, you're, you're the vice chair, and, and Nancy, you're the secretary of the National Board. I mean, this isn't some passing fancy for either of you. <laughs> you're uh, uh, extremely invested in the organization the outlook of conservation and habitat for the future and in the passing on this tradition, not just to women, but to all people. So, um, all right. So when I started formulating the concept here, not all women are, are not all women hunters are new hunters. Uh, Nancy, chimed in when I floated this concept, she wrote, wrote back to me, the title is especially good 
it's an important spin, not just in that women who aren't new hunters can be role models or mentors for newbies, but also in that we don't necessarily see ourselves as women hunters. For most of us, after hunting for years, the fact of gender is irrelevant. Our experiences, challenges, rewards, etc., are similar in variety and range to that of men hunters. So that's where I want to start to dive deeper into the conversation, Nancy. I want you to talk about it because you've watched this arc over, let's say, the last two decades where, you know, in, in a lot of ways, um, you know, that women were an afterthought in the kind of the recruitment piece and the creation of gear and shotguns and it was, I mean, I, I've talked to enough folks to know that, like, you know, you, you wore the guy's Carhartts and, you know, had them, had them uh, custom, you know, mended to fit you. But uh, what's the experience? What's, what's the last 20 years been like in watching this progression in the, in the industry? And I know that's like, a five minute question. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but I know you have a lot to say in this regard. So I'm going to give you the microphone and, and kind of spill your thoughts for us. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now that you read the best speech that I could give on the subject, it, it's, it's funny. There have been changes. I have to say the most exciting changes have been the most recent. When I started hunting, coming from a non-hunting culture and, you know, just dipping my toes in here and there. I, mean, I, I remember going to places where men would not talk to me because it was threatening their male bonding hunting experience kind of thing. I don't see, ha see that happening anymore. And um, there were many, many years I heard a lot of men sort of pay lip service to, oh, I wish my wife went hunting too, because that's so cool. You and your husband can go together. But they never really want, tried too hard, put it that way. They never encouraged, they never found ways to engage. And again, I'm seeing that shift. I am seeing more and more couple, couples, particularly through NAVDA, where there are more women being gay, you know, becoming hunters and working with hunting dogs on their own and women that are hunting with their husbands, but in a more equal way. So I'm seeing a lot of that really starting to accelerate, which is really great. And R3 is doing a lot for it. I will back up and say when I got on the board of Fens Forever, I figured my mission was going to be to bring the world of hunting and conservation to women. And obviously that hadn't really happened, um, at least not until Women on the Wing and some of the more exciting things have been happening in the very recent. So putting all those kind of changing, accelerating engagement, everything else, um, the point about not all hunters are new hunters is because we are in a little bit of a dangerous position right now as we're trying to engage more women to over-feminizing the situation to make them feel relevant in it, hmm. okay? And by that, I mean there are some women that prefer to learn to shoot and hunt with other women. They're more comfortable because culturally they never see themselves that way. I know of young girls, and I know you have 
the pink and shrink coming up here in the conversation somewhere. But I know some little girls that are so excited because they got their first gun and it's pink. And that's great if that works for them because they're, you know, 10 or 12 years old and they're still wanting to be very girly in how they define themselves. However, the, we run the risk of gender identifying that will end up with two parallel universes of hunters as opposed to all hunters being in one universe. And I do not know any of the women I hunt with, and I hunt with a fair amount of women hunters I've known, that I'm going to say have anything characteristically different as a group than men hunters. And that's why I see the path we're going towards as normalizing the sense of women as hunters, not as women hunters. We don't go around Mm -hmm. saying men hunters. And we shouldn't. <laughs> should be either. We, you know, when you talk about people who are anglers, we're not saying women anglers and men anglers or anything like that. So my goal when we get there is when we don't have to say women hunters. And the women that have been hunting for the longest time are the ones who can actually validate that that is a viable reality to be working towards, hmm. as opposed to the ones that are new to it and still have to see themselves as women entering a men's world. I see, uh, Marilyn, your head's nodding um, throughout a lot of what Nancy's talking about. What's your reaction to those comments? You know, I so I, I have the same aversion to the the pink and trinket thing that Nancy does when I see it. I don't. First of all, I don't see it very much anymore. And if I do see it, it is in young girl sizes. I think what I like about it that now is that in the beginning it felt incredibly patronizing because Ooh. it was the only, it was the only gear I could find was pink camo. I'm like, for God's sakes, is this all that, you know, it, it was a, it was like, geez, you know, let's just put lingerie there instead. This is what we're expecting you to wear. <laughs> and where now what I, I, I love about it is that if I want it, I can find it, but I don't, it is not the only thing I can find. And that if I wear being camo, it's because I want to. It's not because I have to. And and now it feels like the norm is that my gear is A, women gear, and it's built for women, but it looks very much like the same gear that Clyde buys, you know, if, if it's orange or if it's whatever it is for the, for the upland season. I don't feel like I have to look different. I look like a hunter. And, and so I, I appreciate that a lot. I I think I would say in the last 10 to 15 years, particularly in running dogs in NAVDA, I I would say that I never really felt marginalized as a woman in NAVDA. I've always felt pretty darn welcome. Maybe the first five years, and that's 30 years ago, it was probably a little challenging. There were very few women running dogs. And at that time, there were probably less than five of us that were judges. But now it's a norm. You come to a test. You don't. I don't judge a test where I don't have at least one or two, sometimes three or four female handlers. I. It's just. It is part of the process. I. It's pretty rare. I don't judge with another woman over a weekend. So it really has become normalized. I think in the Navda system, and probably because we really embrace families as a mm. whole. And, and Terry and Nancy have been a huge part of that by bringing children and youth into that. 
just like Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, that we have brought youth into every level through education and involvement. And I think when the family can embrace it, then everyone gets to feel part of the part of the experience. And I think what connects women, I don't know, at least in my mind, women tend to be more connected to the experience and not necessarily whether they got their bag limit. And maybe that's just, maybe that's just how we, we relate to things. And maybe that, but for me, that's part of it. And it's that I, it takes me back to my childhood. It takes me back to the food chain and connection to everything. And that if I'm going to go out and shoot my game and it's because I'm going to go home and cook it and I'm going to get to the whole circle of life, which has been such a huge part of my life as a farm kid that I just love the fact that it brings it full circle. And I love watching children learn that. And it's been probably my favorite experiences have taken, while I don't have children of my own, we've taken dozens of kids hunting and teaching them everything from how to shoot safely to how to pursue game to how to clean that game, how to cook that game. And here's the liver and here's the lungs and all of those things. It, it, it has taught them so much about just humanity mm. and, and how as a human being, you should respect everything around you. So for me, hunting is so much more than just my bag limit. Yeah. It, you're, I'm glad you brought it there. Cause that's what I was thinking. That's where I wanted to take us uh, the discussion about it. Cause Nancy made a comment that sticks in my head too, that, you know, um, she earlier, she talked about how male hunters and female hunters, they really, they, they don't have different experiences, right? That they're, it's very similar. But my immediate thought is, well, a lot of times the, what's thrown back at guys is like, like, oh, you guys just care about your bag limits. And, and you did make that comment, which the reality is there's some truth in that too, right? Like there's a, there, at least a perception that when women are in a group hunting together, there's a different sort of atmosphere or mentality than a mixed group. Is that an accurate assessment or is that, or is it all just come back to individuals? Like I, everybody's I, sort of different in their motivations and there's bloodthirsty guys and there's bloodthirsty, bloodthirsty women. women. I think part of it is just cultural norms. We force men into a situation where it might be unpopular if a guy felt like he was on this podcast with you to say, I feel like when I hunt, it connects me to Mother Earth. And they might mm -hmm. feel like weird about that, which is unfortunate because probably lots of guys feel the same way. But I think that's just part of the cultural norms in general that we force men into situations where they have to feel like they're competitive and hunting is bravado and all those kinds of things that honestly, I hunt with mostly guys and it's pretty rare that you know, they're high-fiving each other after. That might be what you see on Sunday mornings. That is not, first of all, you're not welcome to hunt with us if that's what your attitude is going to be. But I don't see that. I don't, I feel like that's all kind of just make-believe. I just, I don't experience that. Well, and it makes me think about, um, we mentioned it on a, a previous podcast, but um, about two years ago, I, I met a young man who is a, a very well-known chef in Nebraska that uh, didn't grow up hunting. And he had this, this fear. Um, we took him out on an upland hunt and he had this fear because 
there's this stereotype when he would ask other men, you know, to take him hunting, like, oh, guys are supposed to know how to hunt. This is something that they do and it's manly and it, you know, and so he felt kind of alienated a little bit because he was a new hunter as an adult. And it was just a, a really interesting um, thought and perspective for me. I had never thought about that before. And mm. um, kind of going back to, you know, what you said, Bob, and I think the importance is, the individual um, and getting to know each individual person when they're coming into hunting and what are their motivations? Because uh, it's fascinating to listen to everybody's story and we may have similar connections, but there's still a lot of differences as well, which makes it interesting. So as, as we talk about those motivations and you, Marilyn and Nancy, you have similar pathways we talked about, like met a guy but it got hooked when the dog was in the piece. It, it came into the, into the picture. It, we've talked with Marissa's pathway and kind of food was the path. And then the dog cooked Marissa. Um, uh, what do you, is there, is there a, a, a trend that you see that's most prevalent or is it like, you know, like everything else in the world that, you know, it's to each their own and it come, it does come back to individuals and um, dogs are going to be for some and kids are going to be for others and food's going to be for some it's adventure for others and habitat. Is there any trends that you can point to, or is it all going to be an amalgamation? I, I would say an amalgamation. Uh, if anything, there is a trend that is more, the trend would be, a more willing recognition of the different reasons that people get into hunting or what brings mm. them there. I think I'm um, guessing back before my time, I mean, hunting, you know, it was for food if mm -hmm. you needed it, or it was for the manly sport of whatever. Um, and now I, I do think particularly, uh, I'm going to say through the media and, you know, uh, in the hunting media as just, I think made tremendous gains in the last decade in terms of diversifying the image of hunting, the levels of hunting, whether you're grassroots public land or you're a higher end and you can afford to fly places. And you probably know some of the uh, publications I'm referring to, but I mean, there, there's a greater breadth of understanding of what motivates people to be, mm -hmm. go, you know, getting into hunting. But I, I just want to jump back a little bit to make another point about how we behave hunting and women and men hunting, you know, having similar or different yeah. uh, approaches. And I would say that from my experience, um, the, the classic stages hunters go through as mm. was defined by, I should remember who originally wrote this. Yeah. Uh, you're talking about uh, like the, the getting know, your, shooting phase to getting your limit to, Enjoying the first was just, just being willing to take a shot. Then this, then there's another phase is you know, and and this is not just wing shooters. It's for big game or anything. Mm -hmm. Then there's, there's another phase where it's a matter of getting your limits. Then there's another that's a matter of trophy. But then you morph into the stages where the strategy, and the gear and the planning and the challenges are much more important than those basic objectives. And eventually you evolve into just wanting to be out there and be doing it. And how many birds you bag or how big a deer you shoot is not important. And from the women I know, 
I mean, like men and women both sometimes skip some of those stages. Mm -hmm. But I know as many women who have, you know, gone through them all specifically or certainly touched in them all, including the, I mean, I have a large group of women that I hunt with every October and we've got a few that, I mean, they are just out there rabid to get their limits. <laughs> and we have a bunch of others that it's like, dog goes on point and it's, hold on, we got to get our cameras. You know, the bird is flushed. The bird's probably flown away and died of old age by the time we're ready to take the shot. But <laughs> picture the dog on point. So I'm saying all those kinds of stages, um, they're out there in both genders. Mm -hmm. That's, I'm, I'm glad you circled back to that because I, it, it's so easy to, like Marilyn mentioned, just paint the genders into cultural stereotypes. But it, it comes back, I mean, we could all think of different people and ultimately we're all individuals, right? It, it always circles back to that. Um, it, you mentioned another thing that I wanted to talk about and that's um, in the media, there's more portrayal of women in photography, their voices are being used as writers. How important is that for emerging hunters well, let's ask you both for you as established hunters, but then also in your mind for emerging hunters to have role models of the same gender. Is that important? So I, uh, I'm pretty passionate about this in all things in life. I, I think young girls have to see themselves in anything that they want to do, whether it's a hobby or a career. So if a little girl grows up, and she wants to be an astronaut, she wants to be able to see that there's an astronaut, a female astronaut walking to that spaceship, right? It's the same thing with a physician or any kind of scientist or a police officer. It's the same thing with a hunter. It's really important for them to be able to see that it's okay and that it's not abnormal that they have those same kinds of desires to have those experiences. And, and then it helps them understand that, that it is really part of a normalization of, of the process. So I think it's really, really important that they see them in, in a variety of settings, whether it's on a Sunday morning hunting show or they pick up, you know, Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever journals or any other magazine, or they see their mom pack up their gear for the weekend. I, I think it's really really important and it is what is making it normalized is that they're seeing a much broader audience of women involvement you know i think about marissa's role in in pf and qf is just incredibly important to make because she her charge every day when she wakes up is let's find a way to share that story in a broader audience and and by her bugging you every day bob and everyone else at the and the team Mm -hmm. that now just you'll never you'll never forget that you'll never be able to get away with one day going oh i hadn't even thought about that right. and that's that's our responsibility to make sure that that happens but i don't know about you nancy but i i think it's super important and i wish i would have had that 30 years ago when i first got involved because i'll tell you the i didn't feel it so much in in navda but there were some other games that i played with dogs that were competitive where women did not play and it was not welcoming and it was not very fun. And um, I didn't stick around those games. Uh, even though I was really damn good at them, I just said, I, I, I choose not to play here. 
And, and those games haven't changed much. Hmm. I can't remember the, the percentage. Um, I, I want to say 16%, but that could be wrong for women um, participation in NAVDA. Um, but it was, it was a really high percentage um, compared to the overall uh, women hunters. And as you were speaking earlier about the fact that there's, you know, multiple women judges and women handlers, and you see women in that, you know, that leadership role. It's just kind of going back to what you were saying is, you know, if you want to be an astronaut and you see a, a woman astronaut, um, I, I feel like that is really welcoming to to young girls and even, you know, elderly women who want to get started. No, I, I was just going to jump in and say, in, in addition to what you're saying, Marilyn, that, you know, you know, girl, you know, young women or, or whatever age, it doesn't matter, say, okay, this is, I need to see these images. It's okay. I can do this too. Part of it is because a lot of what we do, particularly when we do something new, whether it's hobby or career or whatever, is we project ourselves into a vision of something. I mean, consciously or subconsciously, you're going to do something you've never done before. You might be nervous because you don't, you haven't seen yourself in that situation. How will I do? What will I do? Kind of thing. Hmm. So all these images of women and images and voices that are, are now getting out there are allowing newer women to say, yeah. I mean, when, when Marissa, you know, we have these great pictures of you, you know, hunting and stuff like that on social media. And it's like a lot of women can look in there and say, well, yeah, okay. Uh, I could be that person wearing that vest <laughs> with my arm around a dog and that bird and you know all of that. <laughs> but I, I also have to jump in with one little funny contradiction about Navda. Personal experience. Because Navda, I mean, never felt any issues about women judges, women handlers, uh, women leadership. I mean, Marilyn being president for all those years. However, there are not many women gunners in Navda. No. There are not. And I that's the only place I still get it. Well, I'm trying to think of a polite way to say these sort of things where I get incredibly sexist comments. I have been a gunner for the Yankee chapter. Um, and for people who are not that familiar with NAVDA who might be listening to this, it simply when we are training, when we are testing, each chapter has approved gunners, people that are very, very safe handling and don't have to be a great shot, but an adequate shot who go out there. We don't let everybody handle live ammo and shoot over all the dogs kind of thing. And I have had, and it's interesting I, when I have had these comments, because talk about putting pressure on you, like, oh, well, you're the prettiest gunner in the field. Excuse me, you know, are you looking at that guy's legs? Why are you looking at me and how I look at here? Hmm. And the other one, I, I even had a judge once say to me, I've never had a woman gunner before. And it was a female judge, by the way. At which point it was like, oh, great, give me more pressure. I'm going to hmm. miss every single word today. There's not even a question. Uh, yeah. and, and so it's just interesting that, you know, our work is never done kind of thing. That You are right. I don't know why it is because, you know, not all NAVDA people hunt. A lot of them just want to train their dogs and let them fulfill their potential. But majority of them do hunt. And I find it surprising that in that one arena, it hasn't caught up yet. Maybe, Marilyn, you've got some guess as to why. I don't know. I think, A, it's intimidating. Uh, and people don't want to put up with the, the snide comments, right, of, like, if you miss a couple. even the, I, There's lots of guys I know that are great shots that won't gun. Because they don't want a handler saying, hey, if you miss a couple of birds, they're going to give you a hard time about it. 
is probably the one last place that you're right, we need to be more of a role model. I can tell you for the hundreds, thousands of dogs I've judged, I have never had a woman gun at any test. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. It's incredible. So, so as I think about this in projecting through the pheasants forever and quail forever world, you know, we have, you know, th- let's say roughly three to 4% of our members on the, in the database are women. Whereas our social media following people in Facebook and Twitter, and Instagram, you know, it's, it's in the 12% range. So three times as many women are following us in, on social media than are actively part of the organization. So, so clearly we have some work to do as an organization to better recruit women. Um, what are some of the suggestions that you might have for where, you know, that you used some NAVDA examples where NAVDA could be more welcoming or inclusive but we have some work to do ourselves. What What are some of the thoughts from a pheasants forever and quail forever? Not maybe not even just from a national perspective. Maybe you, you there's some suggestions for even at the local chapter level. Any any thoughts on that regard? Well, one of them is one that we t- we talked about this just week on our strategic planning committee. Is that when I first got involved, uh, we did a a family membership but the magazine always came to the house just under Clyde's name mm-hmm. and uh, with NAVDA. And we changed that so that you could have a spousal membership. And I, so I, I, even though I didn't necessarily need my own magazine, I had my own identity. And I think that is probably where we forget women as a, if we join as a family, the women's identity oftentimes get masks behind if they have a partner behind that partner's name. And so they don't ever really feel like they have their own individual connection to it. So, and, and think the other thing is that chapters is where it has to start. It has to start at the grassroots. Don't have the women come to, um, if it's a cleanup day for a field or if it's a, it's a, an active planting day or a burning day, don't ask all the guys' wives to bring food and that be their <laughs> role. Because that's typically what always happened in my early years of NAVDA was, well, yeah, I, I can bring lunch, but so can he. He can stop at <laughs> County Market just as good as I am and can buy a salad and bring it. So I think it's, it's really, really intentional involvement to create impact. If, you're in, if your intent marries your impact, you will actually have that impact. And so I think chapters have to think about it. How can I reach out to Mary Jo and not be condescending and say, hey, we're going to have a cleanup day on Saturday. Can you come out? Can you bring lunch? It's, hey, can you bring your gloves and your boots and help us work together? And by the way, can the family bring something to contribute to a lunch? Mm. You know, kind of going in the same direction as far as, you know, R3 goes, and I know I I say this a lot, but I'll still, if you're new, recruit, retain, and reactivate. Um, You know, when we're looking at Women on the Wing initiative within the organization and knowing that all, you know, women hunters aren't new hunters, what are ways that we can engage more 
women in those leadership roles as mentors um, during some of our events? You know, how can we recruit more of them to kind of help us continue to normalize women in that space? I, I think, Marissa, one thing that comes to mind, and I'll use the example of the Women Wine Wild Game event I held in Maine last year. Um, and just as a side note, it's it's looking at, I mean, we're in Maine. I live in Vermont and Maine. We don't have pheasants and we don't have coins, but I got a nice circle of Pheasants Forever members going here. And what it is, I think one of the ways you can get them involved and, and involved towards more leadership is to encourage what you've already started, but maybe more emphasis on women wine and wild game, women on the wing, you know, responding to what you've got to work with demographically and in different regions. So when I did my event, I looked at, I, I thought, well, how am I going to get these people? They're they're all rough grouse and woodcock hunters. How am I going to get these women interested in pheasants forever? So I appealed to them as hunters, and right. yet they were not really yet seeing themselves as hunter conservationists, even though they may have may a lot of them belong to rough grouse society, which is you know inevitable being in New England, we're rough grouse territory. But uh, an awful lot of them, it's because the husband, you know, the the, the primary hunter in the household was a member kind of thing. But when I opened it up and I said, hey, you, you know, this I'm not giving you a sales pitch for quail forever, pheasants forever. I'm giving you a sales pitch as a hunter to be a conservationist. And you're already a conservationist. You just don't know it. <laughs> sure. You know, helping conservation through your license sales, you know, license purchases through your hunting gear purchases. And a lot of them knew nothing about Pittman-Robertson Act. And there were all kinds of things. And all of a sudden, at, at the same time that I was showing them you're already doing this, I was helping them see that there is a much more significant role for them as women hunters in being women who are hunter conservationists. Mm -hmm. So my, my thought, I don't think I'm expressing very well, is to really encourage people around the country to look at what you've, what you've got and where you've got it and build on that resource. You're exactly right, Nancy. I think we make it maybe ourselves on ourselves. We feel like it's too hard to be a conservationist. If I let's say I, I am an active hunter, but I live in a suburban area, I don't know how I could be a conservationist. I don't have a tractor. I don't I don't have a planter. I you know I don't have all the equipment. I don't have attractive land. I think it's a little bit like introducing people to hunting. It's introducing them to conservation. So you're right, Nancy, it's already telling you already are by default. And here are some easier ways to get involved and bring them with. It's that, you know, taking people under their wing and finding, even if it's just planting pollinators, whatever it is, little things that they can do to make it incremental in their life. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great point. And, you know, Nancy actually just did a, a blog for us on that. Um, I believe it was aha moments, Nancy, you titled it. And the connection of when that happened with these, you know, women who have hunted for however many years, but then it was that light bulb moment of, oh, I'm a, a conservationist as well. Um, and, you know, that's really great point from both of you on, you know, how to make those connections with them from the beginning that you are a conservationist. And it's, it's not necessarily as challenging or daunting as we might think it is um, by simply purchasing a, 
uh, license or a duck stamp. Um, we're all in it together. We're making a big impact. And you actually just used the word I wanted to hit on was impact. One of the reasons that we need to probably be more proactive in this is that women are massive owners of land. And, and we have to really be cognizant of that. You know, women mm -hmm. tend, tend to live longer. So if they're in a, in a relationship and their partner passes and if they don't have children, they have massive tracts of land that can be donated or can be even given to like state game and fish or anything that they want to that can end up being an open territory for people to use. They um, oftentimes are the oldest living sibling in a family and they end up with these massive tracts of land that if they don't ever see themselves as a conservationist, the, the default is I can either sell it or I can lease it to farming. And mm -hmm. which is fantastic if, if that's what they choose to do. But if they want to leave it for conservation and habitat, they don't even know it's a possibility until we really salt that, that thought in their minds. Yeah, and that's, I mean, just when we talk about the Women on the Wing initiative, we, we have a whole program specifically designated to that with our conservation outreach, um, knowing that there's more and more women landowners that they, sorry, Bob, they live longer <laughs> than usually. And, um, you know, helping them make those conservation decisions. And so even if they do um, continue to own and farm that land, um, that there's a, a higher likelihood that they're going to incorporate wildlife habitat into that landscape. So uh, lots of exciting stuff. <laughs> well, also, Marissa, well, while we're on Women on the Wing, let's go for the third pathway. And that, that is um, just engaging more women hunters, but also uh, there, and we had talked about this a little bit on the board too, the concept of women's Pheasants Forever chapters. Mm -hmm. um, and and using women on the wing to start some women's chapters. And I think that is another thing. It's, it's very exciting, but it's also an incredible opportunity to sort of uh, leapfrog over that concept to the we could to, to the normalization in the sense that do we have to have it be a women's chapter or is it a women on the wing chapter? And there's a big difference because a women on the wing chapter can have men, they can have sons, but maybe there's just a little extra spin in that chapter that's working to engage more women hunters. So I think, you know, there's incredible opportunities. And as I also said, if anybody would like to read my uh, current article, uh, conservation column in Covey Rise, little plug for Covey Rise there. They're asking to write about some of the women's programs. And, you know, a lot of the conservation organizations are the ones stepping up to getting more women involved, which is very cool. Um, and of course, you know, there are non-conservation uh, hunting clubs and uh, organizations that are doing the same. But I will say that Women on the Wing is the one I've seen that's really, really going to really doing it. I mean, it's not just duplicates of let's learn to hunt kind of thing that Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever has really looked into what, what we need to reach women and what are the, the resources and the potential out there. And the whole Women on the Wing project is just so exciting that it just knocks me out. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. I, every, when I'm, you know, the last two Pheasants Forever, or the Pheasant Fest, and the events that were there, 
the energy in the room was just phenomenal. It really was amazing. Well, and I think those those events have been so great in the initiative because there's women leaders that, you know, like both of you that have helped just generate ideas and excitement around this. And, um, you know, all of the staff and chapter volunteers that were hosting events and, and kind of creating Women on the Wing before it was Women on the Wing is really just helped all of this blossom. Uh, so it's just so exciting. And, and, you know, Nancy, going back to some of what you said with the chapters, um, I love to use the word women's focused um, because, you know, it, it that way, knowing that individuals are unique and we all have different motivations, then it can be all women. It can be women and men. It can be you name it. Um, yep. It still has the excitement with trying to, um, you know, recruit more women, but then you can kind of tailor that depending on what you want and feel comfortable with. And, um, you know, I think that it's it's helped individuals find that space where they feel welcome, whatever that space may look like for them. Really good points. You know, we, we touched on earlier that there was, you know, we talked about the pink it and trinket phase <laughs> of of this. And I, I circle back to that because there's still elements that the language we use is so important. And Nancy has always been a really good sounding board for me in particular. Like I remember um, a conversation around the word huntress once before it. So I, I, I'd like, you know, Nancy and Marilyn to talk about um, some of those words. Like I, I think they're, they've been used historically maybe for good intentions, but they end up actually alienating folks. So maybe explain your reaction to the word huntress, Nancy, and then we can expand from there. You're, you're, you're like <clears throat> flirting with my soapbox here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just starting with the basic concept that language defines our reality. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's like Eskimos, uh, Inuits, or Natives have 27 words for snow and we've got three. Or people will say that's a duck, but until you know the species of ducks, you don't even really see them differently. Mm. And I mean, it, it is it is a, a well-supported concept that a lot of our reality is defined by the language we use. So when we use gender-biased language or gender identity language, we are in essence running the risk of influencing how somebody perceives. So a huntress is always going to be female. And even though we're saying here we're applauding and we're trying to you know, increase the numbers of women hunters, every time we say huntress, instead of calling them a hunter, whether they're male or female, we are calling attention to the fact that it is a woman. I mean, we got rid of stewardess in favor of flight attendant. You know, we there's an awful lot of arenas in which we are using selecting gender gender neutral language, and in the you know in in the uh, drive to finally at some point find normalization of the woman as a hunter as an 50 percent as much of a hunter as a man can be a hunter kind of thing, um, eliminating words that are specifically calling attention to that we could go a long way, mm -hmm. along with using. Uh, non-gender specific pronouns, 
I've had debates with a lot of people, women included, about this. But if we write every single article about hunters and say he, he, him, him, he, he, we're not going to see women in that space. Hmm. So if we if we say he or she, or we just refer to them in the plural, there's a lot of strategies. Okay, I want to change the conversation away from the recruiting women hunters and marketing towards women. And I want to get your thoughts on all things related to hunting. The first piece I want to go to is, we, we touched on this earlier about gear and shotguns and how 10 or 15 years ago, women had to sort of adapt male-oriented shotguns and gear. My perception is things have come quite a ways. Have they come are they where you want them to be or is it still darn tough to find women's hunting pants? Is it still tough to find, um, you know, a shooting shirt that fits right? Uh, uh, you know, hunting boots for women that are legit. What, what's your perspective on where we've been and where we're going uh, from gear perspective? Well, you hit on my, my pet peeve is pants. <laughs> because if, if there weren't hiking pants available from some brands, I wouldn't have pants. I would have to repurpose jeans, which I hate wearing denim when I go hunting. So it's really hard to find good pants. And nobody brands them as hunting pants. Not like most of the guys' pants are branded as hunting pants. They typically, mine are, I get them at REI or Shields or somewhere, and they're in the, in the hiking section. Um, so for me, and I, I'm pretty good on boots, actually, I think, because hiking and, and hunting boots are fairly similar. Um, the other thing for me is upland shirts. I'm not a big fan of the cotton shooting shirts. I want an orange, lightweight, um, very visible shirt and or a polo. They don't exist for women. I mean, they're really, really hard to find. Hmm. So I end up finding you can find lots of, if you go in the golf section, you'll find golf shirts that are orange or, or high visible colors. And, and so I, you know, here's me hiking pants and golf shirts. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't help being five feet tall, you know? So if you do find sometimes they're very hard to find in, in, in the short lengths or so it, it's getting better, but we aren't there yet. Okay. I'd like to add the bird vest to this, mm -hmm. you know, and the problem is that's where the shrink it came into the pink it and shrink it. Mm -hmm. Awful lot of bird vests. If they were going to make them for women, they took the same vest, but in order for it to be tighter around your body, the bird bag shrunk. Uh, you know, they're just, mm -hmm. we, it's, you know, very difficult. Then you end up, I, I mean, I have, I have a vest that I, I've used for years, but I can only use it for training because you couldn't put a half a pheasant in the back only because they shrunk it so much, you know, th there's, there's no space for a bird. Um, that uh, hunting vest is another one. Hmm. There are more options out there, but I generally wear one that's got several safety pins. I had to take in the, uh, some of the belt supports. I just rework them myself to make them. Yeah. Work. I, there was one that used to sell in the in the store, PFQS store, that um, I don't want to say is it Wayne Works that you you they 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 make every vest 
man, right. woman, or child by your right. measurements. Yep. And huh. that for me was rock solid. Nobody, it, when they accidentally put my vest on, they're like, what is this? It's like the scene from Tommy Boy, <laughs> fat man and a little, and, a little and because they're like, whoa, this thing is, it's 18 inches long. I mean, mm. but it fits me perfect. Okay, I got a couple suggestions. Uh, going to the bird vest, the bird and light vests um, have the most adjustments on them to be the most flexible. So the browning bird and light vest. Browning bird and light vest. Um, in hunting pants, one of, the, one of the things, just a side note for some of my familiarity with, with uh, hunting retailers, um, one of the problems with finding uh, upland hunting pants is that we are a fairly small market. And therefore, um, it's it's not a real high profit margin or a high you know a, a large enough customer base. And given that women tend to have more variety in our shapes, it's a very difficult thing for a retailer to carry or a manufacturer to produce. To that end, um, I think uh, we mentioned Carhartts before the uh, 511, 511. Yeah, those are great. The uh, yep. uh, what is it, Fjall? I don't know how to say it. The Jal Raven pants. Oh, Fial, Fial Raven. Fial Raven. Those are good. So it's kind of going outside the hunting market into yep. the hiking outdoor market that has uh, helped a lot. Yeah, they, theirs are pretty good. Their shirts are good. The five eleven shirts and cool. K U H L. I yep. I buy all, almost all my pants are made by Cool, and because they carry they carry super lightweight for when I'm dog training in the summer to some really thick insulated ones that I can wear in December and I can layer them with, with long johns and things when we're bird hunting in North Dakota in December. So uh, I've, I've had really good luck there. They just don't think about things like belt loops and stuff like that. So that, you know, like they make some really great pants, but then I get them and I'm like, oh damn, they don't have belt loops. How am I going to wear my chaps? Stuff like that. You know, it's like, so then I mean, you're going to like wear a belt around my waist and chaps. And it's like, it's really, so sometimes you still have to make do, but by and large, uh, their pants work pretty well for me. The 511 pants, that, those were my very first upload pants. Those were fantastic. And then um, recently I, I was able to uh, get a pair of the, the new Browning women's upland pants. And they were pretty um, similar as far as like the fit went and I, I just love those pants. I've bought a couple more pairs now so that if I go on multiple day hunts, nobody has to experience me wearing the same pair of pants for multiple days. Well, but, and uh, chaps are always good too. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, it's tough to find, you know, good pants and Nancy, that's a great point too. I mean, it is a still, it's the fastest growing demographic, but at the same time um, it's still a pretty small percentage. And so, you know, I try and keep that into perspective when I get frustrated when there's not a lot of gear available. Um, but hopefully, as we continue to grow more women in that outdoor spaces, the retailers and the, you know, the, the companies are only going to be more encouraged to just continue to develop more gear that fits us and hopefully soon. <laughs> Nancy, you have the, the magic wand to create a day to go bird hunting wherever you want in the world with whomever you want in the world. 
what what's your magic where's your magic wand gonna take you what's your perfect bird hunting experience well i'd have to answer it with something that i've already done because i can't say it would be perfect if i haven't been there because i don't know if it would satisfy my imagination how's that for an answer <laughs> i would go back to the big island of hawaii oh 12 species of game birds um, that were all imported in the 1800s. They have let no predators. Their only issue is water. It's on the dry side of the island. And it's, was, it's just a mind-blowing experience. Mm. I would like to do that again. Um, that I, Assuming it could be done as as perfect as it was the first time I and second time that I did it there, it, it's it's amazing. Did you do that for a, a story? No, I did write about it afterwards. Uh, had friends that um, were guiding in Alaska, and they got a gig guiding in Hawaii, and uh, we went there. They had their English pointers there, and it's just you're hunting in short sleeves. You can hunt in shorts. You're looking across at Maui or whatever. And, and the dog would go on point and you would not know if you would get a pheasant or you would get an Urkel Franklin or you'd get some quail. I mean, they are mixed all over these islands. It's just, and they're all wild, completely wild. Mm. So I, I was thinking you might um, say ptarmigan hunting in Alaska which is really high on my wish list. I wasn't expecting Hawaii. But Nobody does. Ptarmigan <laughs> <laughs> well, hunting is great. To give me a little hit because I need one, tell me about ptarmigan hunting in Alaska. Um, you got to like to walk and you got to have legs like shock absorbers because you're on the tundra and it's that spongy, lumpy, awful stuff. Mm. Um, but you get out there and there's when you hunt uh, ptarmigan, at least where I was hunting, the population where I hunted has crashed. It crashed a couple of years ago because of a mild winter and it's being built up. But there is still plenty of ptarmigan hunting and Alaska is a big spot. Um, but uh, it's so exciting because you, when you see them, when the dog goes on point, you see you, and you start to see movement. And it's like this blotchy reddish moving across the tundra, which is green and reddish. And then all of a sudden they flush and they have white wings because they're transitioning into the, into the winter. So that when they come up, you've got, you know, this, this flock covey of white wings and they tend to always fly. They're not like quail. They're not going to like zigzag over your head and, and fly in spirals around you. They flush away and it's pretty spectacular. Mm. All right, Marilyn, you got the magic wand. Where are you going to take us? Can I go back in time? Sure. You could go. This the magic wand. Wherever you want. <laughs> So for me, it's not so much about the where, it's the who. Hmm. And so my dad died when I was 18. So he never really got to know me as an adult. And he never knew me as a hunter because I hadn't been, I didn't hunt yet. Hmm. And so if I couldn't make, I, I would go back in time to when my dad was a young man in Saskatchewan where he was born. And I'd be sharp tail hunting with him. Hmm. And it'd be pretty important for him to know that you became a hunter? It would, because I think he probably knew I wasn't going to be a farmer. No, I he knew I wasn't going to be a farmer. But I would have wanted him to know that I had a connection to mm. the land. 
Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Tell me about your favorite dog of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Nancy knows where she's going to take this. <laughs> favorite bird, a specific dog? Yeah. Oh, I'm just laughing because, I mean, obviously, Marilyn and I are going to have to say short hairs if we were talking breed. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> no, my, my favorite bird dog was a dog named Rimfire. Hmm. who's not around anymore, but um, he was my first Navda dog. And, you know, there's just some dogs you just, uh, you can't even explain it. Hmm. We were a really cool hunting team. And, you know, he'd do some things I, I frozen in my mind is the day we were hunting a little bit of snow on the ground. And he's working scent. He pointed and he's working some scent. And I could see the grouse tracks. The only problem is the grouse tracks were going the other direction. Hmm. And so Rimfire works his way down. And then all of a sudden he stopped and he looked at me with the equivalent of somebody who like slaps their forehead like, duh. <laughs> and he turned around, tracked all the way back, locked on point, you know, got the bird. It was just so cool. And we had so many moments like that. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> it's very fun. <laughs> I can picture Rimfire. <laughs> I, I kind of, I'm like Rimfire in a lot of ways. Dope. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Marilyn, what's your, what dog comes to mind when uh, you hear Nancy's Rimfire story? It's uh, for me, this is easy, boy. This was going to end up being a much more sentimental trip for me than I anticipated. But um, <laughs> I've had, you know, as, as breeders, Clyde and I have had a lot of pretty amazing short hairs but but one that comes to mind is a dog named sonic and, and she she was just as close to perfection as probably any dog i'm ever going to own mm. she was spectacular to look at honest on game honest with dogs she she just was she was flawless and mm. i remember every time i ran her in a test the judges would remark at the end they'd be like wow I, I just have nothing to say. She's just amazing. Wow. And she just was the whole genetic package and, and a spectacular mom to her puppies. Loved it. She was just, yeah, she was pretty amazing. Mm. And she created some incredible puppies. Mm. So I get to run. I now have her progeny that I get to still hunt with. So, so her memory still runs strong for me. And what's her um, progeny's name and how old? Trist. Tris, she's five, and we just ran a utility on Sunday again. So cool. And, How'd you um, do? I got a 199 prize one, and um, I've got a little five-month-old puppy out of him, her. That's so Sonic's grandson. That's running around, and he's pretty damn special. Cool. What uh, what hunt are you most looking forward to in the 2020 season? Hmm. All of them. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> how, many, how many are I'm there, Nancy? As long as I'm not here and I'm not washing my hands and I don't have to wear a mask, I'm going to love everything. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> uh, we are, we every year, we, you know, Bob, uh, we go to this, uh, the grasslands in South Dakota and for me, I think particularly this year, it's going to be really special to have, you know, familiarity, mm -hmm. but also just away from 
where I am every day right now, <laughs> just sitting in my house working in front of a laptop, to have that wide open space and some freedom right now would be pretty spectacular. I'm yeah. excited. So women that are listening that let's say they they do want to that they are that new generation that wants to get involved what's the one bit of advice that you would give a new female hunter um that's maybe a little intimidated getting started hmm. i would say actively seek a mentor that you think you could stay connected to you know i uh, i i judged I judged this last weekend um, at a dog trial and at a knock to test. And there was a young woman who ran, it was her very first order, it was her very first test. And, and I gave her my, my name and my email and said, reach out. I'd really like you, you've got a knack for this. Hmm. You are, I, A, I could tell she was a hunter. I'm like, so I hope she does. Hmm. So even, even if you are a little hesitant to reach out to someone that might even be a stranger, I would say, hey, you know, reach out to me. I don't care, to Nancy, to others that have you know do it. Because even if we don't live in your area, we might know somebody who does build your network. Mm -hmm. Good advice. Nancy? I think, I think my advice would be kind of, which almost sounds like, contradictory to what Marilyn's saying, but it isn't, it goes with it. You can make the hunt your own. Don't think you have to be a hunter like somebody else specifically for whatever's motivating you to go or for whatever your comfort levels are getting into it. Um, make it your own experience. You'll discover the most about it and what it has for you. If you don't try to sort of you know, let somebody show you what to do and how to do it, but you can make it your own experience, whether it's about the dogs or, or it's about the birds or it's about the weather. I mean, whatever mm -hmm. it is. That's also good. So that, that opens it up to what I was going to ask for your, your bit of advice, irregardless of gender, age, ethnicity, background, like what'd you learn last year that you want to pass on to somebody and say, you know what? This is something you could put in your pocket too. Anything come to so, mind? So, my number one piece of advice that I give to all new hunters, and if, particularly if you're going to a geography you don't know well, is the very first bird you shoot, open the crop and see what that bird's eating, and that you will find the rest of your your game for your bag, the rest of your trip that you're there. Because if you know what they're eating, you know where to find them. Sage advice. Mm -hmm. Very good. Anything come to mind for you, Nancy? Well, I didn't learn it, but I had a couple of opportunities to experience it. And that is don't trust your technology. <laughs> don't. I mean, I'm not saying I got lost, but I, was, I wasn't in a couple of situations where um, I, I, you know, needed to really understand how to use my compass. And, and even more than that, um, I had a situation and technology goes for the dog too. I had, had a, a situation where, okay, I have a, a GPS on Astro on my dog and he got disoriented and he was 400, 500 yards from me, which is way far from where I, and it's like, okay, so I got that on him, but what good is it going to do me? 
So there's a matter of, I guess, I just had reinforced in my mind that I need to constantly pay attention to sort of my own elemental skills <laughs> with my dog and with myself. I would, I would take that advice heartedly myself because I, I have those same challenges for sure. Um, Marissa, did I miss anything along the way that uh, that I uh, you want to make sure we talk about? I, I just would love I would love to ask both of you. You know, as as two of the most influential women uh, within Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, when you think of women on the wing, and when you think of engaging women in the as hunter conservationists, I guess. What's your vision for the future? I think my vision would be really wrapping up a lot of what we talked about here. Mm -hmm. that my vision for the future is that there will be as many women engaged in hunting and conservation as there are men, but not as a goal to match numbers but as a goal because we need more hunters, we need more conservationists. And I think that they're probably, my vision has the women coming into conservation as bringing to it something that we're not even guessing at. Mm -hmm. I like that. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I have anything that different to say other than I, I would hope that we can create a welcoming ecosystem where women can come in maybe come in as novices, but leave life someday as experienced, confident conservationists that are proud in their own right for what they've been able to leave behind. And, and maybe for them to find that aha moment that Nancy talked about and to, and be surprised sometimes about how much of an impact they can make. Because I think we oftentimes underestimate the impact that we can lend to conservation and habitat because it feels so big mm. but if we all do a, a little part we are big together i love that we're all big together <laughs> yeah very fitting fitting question and answers to um to close this episode of on the wing podcast marissa thank you so much for uh for riding shotgun once again another punch on that card you're going to have to take over <laughs> next time. <laughs> I don't know about that, Bob. <laughs> um, Nancy, Marilyn, not only thank you for, for participating in this episode, but thank you for being leaders within the organization, volunteering your time. Um, you know, I don't think people recognize how much time that you give to the organization as volunteers with the National Board of Directors. And um, it's, it's not a once and done sort of thing. You, you're both working on multiple years and you're also serving as committee chairs and chairs really high executive levels in the organization. So on behalf of all the employees and the team, thank you for how much time, expertise and knowledge and patience at times that you've given uh, given all of us for this organization. So um, really, really appreciate it. It's truly an honor. I feel I feel very much the same. And thank you, Bob and Marissa, for everything you're doing here. You know, if I if there was one thing that I'd I'd want to remind people about is that sometimes this 
mission that we're on feels really daunting. Mm -hmm. And what I feel right now is really hopeful because even in a world where people are experiencing so many difficulties in their own life, a most, a, one of the most recent polls I, I read was that 70% of people still want to think about sustainability. Hunting isn't just about what sometimes what people want it to categorize us as, as this is our experience. It is really a deeper connection. And I think when people see it from that perspective, they can then see themselves in it much later in life than they maybe ever thought they could. So I'm just really hopeful that people will continue to find whether it's hunting or conservation as part of their life in a deeper connection to all of the world around them. Yeah. How's well that? Said. How's that for putting a bow on this podcast? Very well. Said. I got goosebumps. Beautiful. <laughs> Marilyn, Nancy, Marissa, thank you very much. It was entertaining and super educational and and i think on many levels inspirational too so really really enjoyed it thank you thank you very much thank you all right folks um if you're not yet a member of pheasants forever or quail forever we want you to first consider our virtual women wine and wild game event coming up you can find it on the homepages of pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org. If you sign up for that, uh, it's 40 bucks. It comes with access to the event and your choice of a Pheasants Forever or Quail Forever membership. So it's a really easy way for you to attend, become part of the virtual community, get involved in the conservation mission. And like uh, Marilyn said, it's, it's not daunting. It's a really easy way for the door to open and for you to walk right on through. Um, so please get involved, pheasantsforever.org, quailforever.org. I'm Bob St. Pierre saying always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks for, thanks for listening, folks.